Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Canines Talking Sense. So, in this episode, you got to see this guest interview me in a previous episode. So now it's my turn to turn around and interview Steve and Tamarchi. So I know I got it pretty close to right, <laughs> <laughs> your last name. Um, but Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for taking your time to come on here and uh, answer my questions this time. Yeah, my how uh, the turntables, as Michael Scott said, right? <laughs> uh, oh, how the turntables have turned. Yeah, something. Well, yeah, exactly. <clears throat> yeah, it, I feel much more comfortable being on your end interviewing than being the one being interviewed. But uh, and and uh, you did say my last name right. Antomarchi is perfect. That's the way you say it. So yes, cool. thank you for having me, man. Absolutely. So let's dive into you and your background. So tell us a little bit about you how you got to where you're at today and describe that journey for those watching and listening. Yeah, man. Uh, it's definitely a journey. And I think that's a, that's a good way to say it because we all have our story, right? And uh, not crazy unique to our industry, but my story definitely starts on 9-11. Uh, as a volunteer fireman at that time, uh, went with my local engine from New Jersey over to New York and spent a couple of days over there. And I was actually uh, pretty young at the time. I'm maybe 17 years old, right? So still trying to figure out what I want to do for the rest of my life. And then to be in the middle of such a tragedy really shaped my career. So I always point back to that. And uh, quite frankly, that was the first time I ever saw a working dog work. So a couple of days later, of course, the uh, search and rescue dogs show up. And uh, I got to see something that I always tell people was like really, really moving in my life, which was seeing a dog um, not only working, but working through injury. And uh, that it was like a lab. The lab had, uh, I guess, had cut itself through some of the un uneven surface, um, some of the sharp objects, as you can imagine, were everywhere. So the lab had cut itself kind of in probably the rib area, I would say. And the handler must have had pretty significant uh, medical background because he put the dog to its side. He used some iodine, cleaned it out, and it was small enough where he felt comfortable suturing it right there and leaving, I guess, a little bit open. And he sutured the dog right there, probably 20 feet from me. And, um, and then the dog got back up and they started working again. And mm. for me, that was it, man. I was like, the first conversation I ever had with God right there. Like, if I get to do something that meaningful and that cool, please choose me. I want to do something that cool. And then I get an opportunity, you know, fast forward 15 years, I become a police officer, get an opportunity to work in the private sector, have some awesome mentors kind of put me, um, you know, take, take, take who I was at that time, which was a very cocky young man who thought he knew everything and really did a great job of molding me into someone who was a, a student and a forever learner. And um, yeah, man, I, now I'm the, the founder of Next Level Canine Texas. We focus on a lot of canine research within the police community. Uh, that's primarily our focus. We have our local groups that see us uh, you know, every week, and uh, we kind of open that up to the North Texas area. Um, but yeah, I've worked probably 14 dogs in my career. Um, because I've always worked a bomb dog and a narcotics dog throughout my career. That's both a blessing and a curse, of course, mm -hmm. as you know, it's a lot of work there. Um, but those are the, I kind of cut my teeth in the explosive detection side first and saw the nuance there and really fell in love with the science and just found myself doing scientific research with, you know, some of the universities that 
are known to do canine scientific research. That's a lot of dogs. I mean, you've definitely to have 14 dogs over the span of what, how many years would you, how many years you've been working a dog? About uh, as 15 years. Yeah. Okay. So like you said, two at a time. So mm-hmm. there was, that's like I said, that's, a, it gets you hands on a lot of dogs. And for you in a fairly short period of time, you know, the, how did you get to that point with going with, you know, let's say the average typical canine handler has a dog. Um, they work it, let's just say six years and then mm-hmm. they get another one. Now you had two at the same yeah. time, roughly. Yeah. Is that with just a, a part of being with a, an agency with more flexibility? How does that come around? Yeah. So m- all of my narcotics dogs were dual purpose dogs. So if I, I've only actually worked four of those dogs. The rest were bomb dogs that I worked for both the police side and the civilian side. Gotcha. And that's where those, that's where those numbers go up. So really I would say I've worked four professional dogs in my career, a narcotics patrol dog, uh, and including the the private sector stuff, it gets it just gets quite high. I was naming yeah. them yesterday. I was like, holy crap, I've worked a lot of dogs in my life. <laughs> and unfortunately, <laughs> well, they, they, they get good and then they die on you. So you have a wall full of their, you know, a, a reminder of what you learn from each one of those dogs. For sure. The and well, I mean, how you reach the point of now instructing and in teaching and training it's by getting your hands dirty with a number of dogs um is what molds you and helps you relate you know for me um one of the things that was a blessing and a curse was the fact that in the beginning it was kind of a curse jumping going from military to having a business to law enforcement then contracting you know so I was always moving location to location, but every time I changed jobs or those careers, it gave me new dogs to work, new experiences. And then now, fast forward, I can take those past experiences and be understanding and relate to others uh, in these different types of genres from contracting, military, law enforcement, and so forth. So even though I kind of never did one for 20 years, I like like you're mentioning with the dog stuff i'm trying to make a correlation for listeners to understand sometimes that path though you want that straight line sometimes having multiple opportunities in these different professional genres can be a bonus for you even though in the beginning it doesn't necessarily feel that way yeah i absolutely value my time with those four core dogs that i've that i've built my career around on the police side um, but I can make the argument that I've learned a lot more about the other dogs that I had to work because I had less time with them and I had to do, you know, a job that's relatively serious, right? You're looking for explosives you can't afford to miss. And then um, that came really evident um, when having to respond to, you know, some tragedies even locally. I don't know if you remember back in 2015, I think it was, uh, where the Dallas uh, five officers got killed downtown. Yes. So. They were killed downtown, and then you know during the negotiations, that that guy was saying that he had hidden IEDs all over downtown. So after he gets neutralized, it's our responsibility now to clear all of downtown Dallas to make it safe, so that CID and everybody else can start processing the scene. And I tell this story for anyone who's been to any of my classes. This is where I love talking about my failures because I've learned so much about my failures. And although I would say I was very much involved in training the right way and training for operational success, one of the things I didn't train for was 
neutralizing my my bomb dog to human blood mm-hmm. and that was tough for me because you know you're given this responsibility um to clear a certain area and my dog spent a lot of time on that novel odor he spent more time than i'd like and you know going back uh what could i do right i look at okay what, what could i have done differently so that i can have a better result in the future because you have guys backing you up that have that have no background in dogs whatsoever you know their job is to back you up a little fun fact about that situation at the time of our deployment there were still two people outstanding that we were very interested in that we thought were involved so the guys that were with me are essentially SWAT members who've never been around a dog and you know are they going to be looking at what you do of course they are and one of the things that uh, came up was hey your dog spent a lot of time around that blood uh, do we need to be worried about that? And I'm like, no, I do. Cause it's a training issue. Um, but, um, yeah, um, got to, got multiple opportunities to deploy in other, um, unfortunate tragedies when you're dealing with a bomb dog, where I can say that we've, we've done a great job of doing our best we can to neutralize to that human odor or that human blood odor, which is, which is tough. I don't know if you've ever had an experience with that, but that was a tough one for me. Yeah, the and I kind of want to stay there for a second with you. Let's talk about how that went down for you. Um, so take us from the beginning. Obviously, I'm I'm assuming the you got called or notified. Mm-hmm. Obviously, this is a, a, a active shooter situation. We need you to respond to this area and kind of give everybody watching and listening like the step by step experience sure. that you went through. So, of course, it happened at the end of like a 12-hour shift, right? So, I'm just finishing my shift. Um, I get a call uh, on my way home. Uh, an ATF uh, calls me and a guy that I trained with for a while. And he's like, hey, have you, are you aware of what's happening downtown Dallas? And you know, at that time, it's essentially a SWAT call, right? That we know that there was still one or multiple outstanding. Um, so, I didn't know the, of course, the, the small details. but then it's all over the news. It's national news at this point. Everyone knows about it. Everyone's talking about it. Um, I'm on my way home. Um, and I was working my narcotics patrol dog at the time. Uh, my, my bomb dog who I had just certified the day before, um, I'm actually on my way home to go pick up that dog so that I can, uh, go back to downtown Dallas and take care of what I need to take care of. And a uh, unique situation, typically I have a split kennel where I always have both dogs with me. In that situation, um, that particular car didn't have a split kennel. It was kind of, uh, I think my car was down at that time. So it was just a spare car. So I only could take one dog and that's why I have to go back. So anyway, I, I get back and, you know, everybody's perception of the law enforcement side is this, this is absolutely a SWAT deal at this moment, not a narcotics or a, a bomb dog situation. So when I get home and I, I start packing up my stuff and I, and I grab everything. My wife looks at me and she's like, where are you going? And uh, I'm just like, they believe that there's IEDs all over downtown. So we have that moment. We have a quick prayer and she's like, hey, I don't want you to go, but I know that this is what you train for. This is part of the process. So um, grab all my stuff, grab all my gear. Um, I'm thinking everything my mentors ever talked to me about, uh, making sure I keep dryer sheets with me and be mindful of static electricity and all those things are running through my head. So what do I do? I pick up the phone and I call one of my mentors, Bob Suarez. And Bob's like, Hey man, you've trained for this. You're going to be fine. Like 
this is the call that you've been waiting for your career. Go do a good job. Try to put me at ease, of course. So um, I, I mentioned that when I got down there, I was assigned a SWAT team. Well, uh, because I'm not thinking, right? I, I'm i thinking, all right, I have these dryer sheets. I have to really rub everybody down with these dryer sheets. So the conversation was like, hey, my name is Steve. This is my dog, Verdi. As I'm wiping them down without their consent, uh, which was a pretty funny moment, right? Because And none of the guys ever said anything. They were just like, I guess this is part of the process, right? But here are these big old SWAT dudes, right? And I'm like, I'm rubbing them down with these dryer sheets to, to try to minimize static electricity. And I, no one even brings it up until after the deployment. They're like, hey, you want to run us, why, like, tell us why you did that. And I'm cracking up. I'm like, why didn't anybody say anything? Here I am. I'm in my own head thinking I have to make this a priority. Uh, I'm looking at everybody's uniform and their gear to make sure that it's going to be compatible for the for their operational success and safety. So, um, so uh, I meet my guys, and then uh, and then the hard truth comes, which is we have about 25 bomb teams in the Dallas Fort Worth area at that time, and only three were there: myself mm-hmm. and two other ATF agent dogs. Um, and I couldn't tell you exactly why. I know there was more red tape than you would hope to see in a situation like that. Uh, Some people could not get the okay to come down and help us. So we felt like we're on an island, man, to be quite frank. Um, So we're trying to clear city blocks um, in downtown Dallas. It's it's, uh, quiet. You can hear a a pin drop. Very awkward. Um, And I remember trying to gather as much intel as possible. And I'm speaking to some of the Dallas officers who are holding perimeter, who are actually involved in a firefight. And they're like, hey, I saw this guy get shot. I returned fire. I'm like, wait a second. You were involved in this thing and you're holding perimeter? This is like 10 hours later, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, it, it was it was tough. Um, even back then, kind of a shortage of police officers. So, um, get, getting numbers there was a problem for really any agency. But anyway, we're doing our thing. And, of course, we're given three blocks to kind of focus on where everything happened. And we come up with a plan that we're going to come back every 45 minutes to an hour. We're going to go radio silent. We're going to have our teams with us and we're going to go to work. And, you know, I've trained with these guys. So I am thankful for, for, for the phone call um, to know that they had enough trust um, in me to do my job and the dog's ability to do the job operationally. And that's important. I think that gave me confidence, but it also scared the crap out of me. Because you don't want to be the guy to miss something. This is as real as it's going to get, right? You have five officers confirmed killed. Um, very good intel. At that moment, we actually had video of um, when the suspect pulled in to park. You had another vehicle parked just one spot from them. There was a male and female in that in that vehicle, and the female had a backpack on her. And they had a quick conversation, and they went different ways. Now we know it was completely random. But we were con- we were convinced that that's where the IEDs were. Thus, we took it as serious as we could. So, you know, you're going to do everything you can to gather as much intel before actually putting your dog's paws, uh, you know, on the ground. You want to make sure that you understand the environment. You want to start thinking about if I'm a bad guy, where am I going to put IEDs? Where where would people funnel in? This guy obviously had this thought out. So we were we spent some time planning. Um, and then we did our thing. We broke up into our three units. Um, we came back. We discussed what we saw, what we cleared, what we didn't. Uh, we had an exterior 
kind of command post and an interior command post. So we just go back to the interior and talk about what we saw, make sure guys were hydrated and and that the dog was hydrated, give them a break. So we had uh, you know, good reps from every single time the dog was out there. And uh, you know, then I'm confronted with uh, obviously a very uh, a large pool of blood where one of the officers got shot and unfortunately killed. And uh, it was tough, man, because um, I, you know, you compartmentalize everything as much as you can. Uh, so at the time of the deployment, I don't think that it bothered me as much as it did afterwards when I had time to think about it. Because I'm like, damn, I could have done better there. Um, but, you know, my dog had never been exposed to that. Spent quite a bit of time there. And there was police equipment and other things that were kind of thrown in that area. Um, and eventually we got we got through that and continued to search different areas. And then we went to kind of like a 7-Eleven convenience store that got shot up pretty good. And in that area, there was glass and all kinds of stuff. So I'm like, okay, how do I clear this safely? I don't have booties on my dog. Um, is this safe? To do? What, what should I do here? Things that I didn't even think about in training. So another situation after dealing with the blood, now I'm in another situation where there's shards of glass everywhere. Ironically, the 7-Eleven you know, attendant is still behind the cashier waiting for customers where that's not going to have any. Um, and uh, my dog takes me to the back and, uh, you know, we get to a door and my dog starts to really show a lot of interest. And the the the, the attendant there at the 7-Eleven says, hey, I think there's people down there. And I'm like, okay, this is, again, this is not a dual purpose narcotics dog looking for human mm -hmm. odor. This is a bomb dog. So now uh, the SWAT team that's assigned to me has to go downstairs. It was like a basement area where there was about 20 people down there that were just hiding for cover. I told you this was 10 hours later. Mm. Because, of the, because of their location, there was no cell phone service. They were scared to come out. And now they're having to kind of cycle through making sure these people are safe and that none of these people are the people we're looking for. So, you know, after that happens, we clear that area for, for IEDs or explosives. And then we get back to work, man. And we did this for... In about 12 hours on a rotation, mm. on for 45 minutes to an hour, and then off for about a half hour, and then went back and forth for about 12 hours. And it was, it was tough not finding anything because, I mean, that's your greatest fear. Um, I mean, I told you my 9-11 story. I get home, and my wife, of course, can't sleep. And when I get home, like the first thing I see on the TV is a video of me working my dog, and on the bottom... Mm banner says the worst tragedy lo worst loss of police lives since 9-11 something like to that to that effect and it like hit me i was like well god answered my uh my prayers he, he gave me an opportunity to to uh, not only work a dog but to respond to a tragedy and um i'm happy to say that there was no ieds found um now at his location where he lived he did have ieds so our general consensus was that he just hadn't prepped it enough, to feel, didn't feel comfortable enough with his knowledge to actually deploy the IEDs. Uh, but he had all the all the book readings, all the uh, the FBI basically had told us that he was ready to do it, just for whatever reason, did not. So, mm. so let's go into on that deployment. What did? What were you brought the blood part 
But let's, because this is the closest thing I would say a law enforcement canine handler would have to what a military combat veteran has when they worked in Iraq or Afghanistan. Um, and just, you know, the examples from the military side of it was the first couple of years was a lot of lessons learned hmm. of, oh, well, that doesn't make sense for this kind of theater, or this kind of deployment, the training that they had, had employed prior to that, the style of deploying a dog prior to that was all what I would say the typical bomb dog world of training, which was walk backwards, present, and all these things that didn't didn't make sense in an environment like that. You needed to be off leash. You needed to have distance. You know, all these different things that uh, later on became commonplace, but at that time was not. So for you in a call like that, did you work on leash? Did you work off leash? What were some of the things that you were like, wow, I wish I had done something in training to prepare me for this. Um, and along that same line that what you got, went through on that, what did you take forward to prepare other people that you train because of that incident? Yeah. So one of the things that um, I, I wish I did more at that time was kind of directionals off the leash. Uh, it was one of the things that the ATF had down. It was beautiful to watch because in one of the times where I was taking a break, I got to go see him deploy his dog and, he was primarily taking care of all of the um, of the parking lots. So you had hundreds and hundreds of cars. Um, if people remember, there was a protest happening during that time. So you had thousands of people downtown that could not get to their cars, and every single one of those cars needed to be cleared. So you're asking one dog to clear probably somewhere in the, in the midst of 1,500 cars. Um, so one of the things I got to see him do was he's using a whistle. And he's directing the dog right and left, right? And I'm thinking, how beneficial is that at this moment? Here I am with a 15-foot line, doing everything with my dog for the most part. I had some, some control, but not that level of control. And I really wish I did because I think it would help me a lot more in those situations where uh, the dog's not thinking obedience. He's just looking for direction and he's doing his thing and he's working those things out, you know, uh, without being on a leash, off leash. So that, that was one of the things that um, I definitely picked up on that we started to implore afterwards um, was those directionals off, off leash is huge. You want to be able to cast your dog for a significant distance if needed be. But I, I would say this, your environment is always going to dictate your tactics. So what he was doing, it was perfect because that's the setting he needed to do that in. Um, primarily what I was asked to do the 15 foot line and I had a flexi that was like 30 feet that I had on me as well that I could switch um, was perfect for what I needed. I, I didn't think it really inhibited me in any way. Um, but I still wish that I had that in my back pocket. You and I talked about having different tools, right? That was one of the tools that I was like, I have to get that as part of my arsenal, especially for what we're being asked to do on the bomb side. And as you kind of say that it's, that bigger picture i'd rather have it and not need it than mm. need it and not have it and a lot of skills um or training methods come from a preference or a <laughs> specific experience and until you've experienced something different or go through a deployment that you hadn't ever planned for or expected you discover some of those gaps. And in that moment, you're like, 
damn it, I wish I had that, whatever that would be for somebody. The part I wanted to, this is kind of just a tongue-in-cheek comment, but you brought up something that is always a part of conversation in the detection dog worlds, and that is, does obedience ruin a detection dog? <laughs> uh, I I would highly, well, I, I don't typically try to have real opinionated um you know, views on a certain thing. Cause I try to listen to people's perspectives when they're super hot and bothered by a certain topic. And I've heard this over and over again. Uh, I've never, ever, ever had a situation where a, a properly trained dog was in conflict because it had a high level of obedience. Um, I, I don't think that if you're seeing that operationally, I think that's a training issue. Um, I think you should be able to have both. And I've never had an issue with a high level of obedience in my bomb dogs to be able to do everything they needed to do and then still work independently without conflict. I think that's um, that's something that we should be striving for. And uh, my guess would be that people tend to uh, make excuses why they want to do something or not do something until you do it operationally or in, in those environments and you realize how important it is to have obedience in those settings especially, you know, when there are safety issues, safety concerns, like you have to have some level of obedience. Does it have to be, um, you know, a KMVP dog, you know, type of obedience? Probably not. Um, but there, I don't think just going over the, the broad term or question, does obedience kill drive? I just don't, I don't believe it. I, I, don't, I think you're channeling two different things and you can, you can easily uh have and we we have this term that doesn't make sense but to the dog trainers and handlers it almost should we want 100 percent obedience right at the same time uh, we want 100 percent drive mm -hmm. and that those are the things we're striving for yes those numbers don't add but we believe we can achieve it and we we strive for that um you know every training day a lot of those rumors like that or i would say beliefs like that get passed around um, like you said, for no reason, they're based off of, off of either in this case, probably bad training mm -hmm. was something or, or something based off of too much compulsion control aspect and, or the other side would possibly be, well, the dog that whoever saw was a dog that was probably a little too weak to begin with. So mm -hmm. even the slightest bit of control looked right. like, oh, that was a problem. And then you know, our industry just has this inherent ability to pass on <laughs> information to each other as if it was gospel. And yet, because of, I think, the institutionalized learning system that exists, it prevents or inhibits somebody from questioning that when they're told that, like, really? That doesn't make any sense. I have a dual purpose dog who's highly trained in obedience and it does detection, yet someone says, Obedience kills driving a detection dog. How does that? How is that actually making sense now? Because of not only do I have a dog that has obedience, I have to certify with it, so therefore I demonstrate it. And then others who I know have the exact same thing, and I know people probably have even better obedience than I do, and they still have a great detection dog. So it's it's you know I, I ask that because you know uh, me and you kind of talked before, but I'm on a journey myself taking uh, a dog and doing high level obedience with it but it's already a detection dog a strong detection dog and i'm also having to learn 
a whole new way of doing obedience because Michael's the one teaching me. Yeah. Um, you know, I, of course I could do obedience, but I also wanted to be uncomfortable myself by doing it his way and going through all the nuances that his method that he likes to do has. And it's a lot of mechanical stuff. So mm -hmm. anyway, I'm just chronicling um, that journey for people in the future that they'll see you can take an old dog like me, teach me some new tricks, but be really uncomfortable. But at the same time, demonstrate some different aspects of good obedience, good control that are really applicable to deployments such as what you mentioned, because, you know, I also got to see there was, you know, aspects where, man, having a dog where I could collaborate, like you said, from a distance, send it out, have it go left, go right, do something that I need to go do but it's not safe for me to get that close. Mm -hmm. So if, if I could employ my dog to go do something um, and do it effectively, but still be able to communicate to it if I need to, if I need to stop it right away, if it indicates, get it back to me, yep. all of these things that would become highly useful and important, uh, especially in a deployment situation. So, um, you know, those watching and listening, I hope they take away that, there's a lot of different ways you can build collaboration with your dog that is enjoyable, motivational for the dog and get a lot out of it for you operationally. And it doesn't do anything but actually enhance your dog's capabilities, not decrease them. So um, I'm glad you kind of mentioned that because I think, again, the more we share operational experiences we can also see better where it connects to training and maybe what doesn't connect to training and then realize, okay, and we all know this, we all know there are certain things that we have to train for, for a certain certification or a standard. So that way we can go do the job that we want to go do. And some of those things that we're required to go do don't make any sense operationally. It's simply a demonstration of uh, control or the ability to show that we take the appropriate initiative when it comes to something with high liability. So yeah. the, um, so when, when that deployment was over, you walked away with those lessons learned. Um, what was your next kind of deployment after that, where you were in a situation and you had a takeaway from it? Well, I've had a couple. The, the most recent one was probably the most heart wrenching was the, the Allen Outlet Mall shooting. I'm not sure if that made national news, but we had mm -hmm. uh, several. Did it? Did, do you? Do was you that the one where the guy was in a mail truck for a little while too? He, or they thought he was in a mail truck. No, this one was like a in an outlet mall, which is kind of only outdoor. It's almost like um, it's like a shopping center where think of it, and it's so bad. All the stores are almost like in the shape of a square on the outside, and everyone parks on the inside. So they're not really connected. It's door to door. Mm -hmm. So it's not like your traditional mall. Um, basically, he comes in. Uh, he's got a, um, you know, a plate, a rifle plate on. He's got armor and he's got his assault rifle and he starts just murdering people. Mm. And uh, I remember I was on duty when that came out. Um, I had to go again, grab my bomb dog and head in that direction. And those are tough because, you know, uh, I'm a father of two and to see, you know, a lot of things in law enforcement you see probably don't bother, bother you. But 
for me, it's always kids. That's that's mm-hmm. that has always been my kryptonite. Same. Uh, kids it's and, always kids and animals. There you go. Um, yeah, asking me to shoot a deer that's stuck in a fence, and it, I'm going to have a hard time all day dealing with that. Um, but I, I digress. We're, we're 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 deploying, getting prepped for this deployment, and um, the guys are already down by the time we're there. There were some talks about a secondary person, but uh, we're able to look at video and kind of slow things down. And then it was just about basically clearing the the car that he came in. And then he went into a couple of stores and clearing those stores for IEDs. And it's kind of a flashback from that time in downtown Dallas. And th- this happened in Allen, Texas, by the way. Um, so um, I've talked I've talked about my failures pretty openly with the guys that I train with. and. Um, what's really cool about our group is when we deploy, we typically deploy with each other. So I had dual purpose narcotics patrol handlers with me on this deployment because they see how we deploy in practice, right? All the operational uh, lessons that we've learned. Um, I get to talk to them about it between equipment and what we're looking for this and that. A lot of those guys find that really interesting, even though they're not bomb dog handlers. They want to be a part of it. They have good questions. Um, so I'm like, Hey, who, who better to have as my backup as guys who train with me every single week, know the expectations and know what we're looking for and the dangers. So, um, we had a SWAT team that we typically work with anyway. We do a lot of integration with that local SWAT team. So I knew the commander and like, Hey, this is what we're doing. This is what we're looking for. Does anybody have any questions? And then there's blood everywhere. Right. So now I get an opportunity since then to see how that training translates to you know, operational stuff. So happy to say the dog could care less about the blood. She did a great job of clearing the areas. Um, always tough to see, though. At, at that mm-hmm. time, I would say the difference between that deployment and the Dallas deployment is I didn't think about anything while I was doing the Dallas deployment. I was just laser focused on just the job at hand. I can tell you when you're on scene and you see a whole family mowed down and you have kids that are killed, that's tough. And I would say I wasn't, this was more of a, a, an emotional response that I was having to kind of deal with and get through um, when seeing all those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, clearing his body, that's another one that we, we didn't even think about with a Dallas one was, does he have an IED on his body? Um, have you trained for that? Um, luckily, in training, we have. We, since the Dallas thing and lessons learned, we tried to recreate the Aurora shooting um, that happened in the movie theater. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and anytime that we put something together as a company, we do these operational, um, tra- uh, th- these, these scenario-based trainings that are based on real-life uh, deployments. So if you're, if you're a bomb dog handler and you've never been into um, a movie theater where there's popcorn and everything all over the ground and you're asked to search for explosives, I can promise you it's going to be something that you need to address. Especially if you have a lab, because they're little vacuum cleaners at that point. Mm-hmm. They're just they're eating everything, and they're especially the ones that are food reward, right? Like a lot of the ATF dogs. So, but yeah, the the that would be the next deployment that I would say that's worth mentioning that we had that had to had similar things that we had to overcome. The environment was different. I kept my dog on a kind of a, a shorter leash because of all the things that were happening. I cleared. Very similar to a SWAT operator um, clearing, just 
you know, all, all, all of the shallow areas first and then kind of approaching and systematically going through a lot of communication with my guys and what, what's been cleared, what's not clear, what are they seeing, looking up, looking down. Um, it was beautiful to be a part of because I had guys who were just as vested in my success um, as, as I was. And um, when they saw potential dangers for the dog, they'd stop and say, hey, just so you know, I think this may be an issue and this is why. Um, but we literally followed the whole a blood trail to a location where we, we were pretty sure, um, you know, the, the, the suspect or whatever you want to call him kind of followed that whole area. Uh, so there's tons of different types of odors there. And, you know, overall, I'm, I'm happy with that deployment. I think everything I learned in Dallas really helped help that specific deployment. Um, if I had to be critical about myself, and it's something that I, I try to do, is, um, you know, during the time of the search, my dog decided it was a good time to go potty. Um, although I asked her, hey, this is the time to go. This is the time to go. I was too busy talking to other people, didn't actually see if she went. So here we go again. A minor thing that you do a million times, you don't even think twice about. Typically, we don't even allow the dog to go do anything until it shows us that it goes potty. So it's not part of the, it's not causing an issue with operational success, right? So I I must have missed it because she took a dump in the middle of the store. And now I have I have to deal with that. I have other guys that don't want to step in it. And it's just an unnecessary thing that I could have avoided if I took my time and went through that mental checklist a little better. I would even add that even if you did, she took a break and you, you mm -hmm. saw it, situations like real deployments like you mentioned bring out stress that mm -hmm. we've never put the dog through before. Like, oh, like yeah. you mentioned that many bodies or the blood or the stress from the handler and the other people around and all of the, the dogs, as we all know, live their world through their nose. And in an environment like that, could you imagine what they're smelling mm -hmm. and the stress that that might cause? And, um, you know, I knew from, we, we had, we just mentioned there was a dog that, uh, in the one of the units I worked with every time, right before he would find the suspect, he would take a shit right then. And then it was like, clear a system. Boom. Now it's, now it's time to go fight. Yeah. Um, and no matter how many breaks you gave him, that was his response. So it showed you that, that there was a level of stress that was happening. But he was ready to engage. That was like, he's like, okay, know what's happening. Here we go. Yeah. Um, there's a biological factor for that dog. But to your, what you mentioned there, um, it's also one of those things you can't train for, which is the bigger picture that I wanted to kind of highlight. You're mentioning some really, really critical things that should be happening in training. Um, you know, just like you mentioned, the movie theater environment where there's popcorn. We we can visually think of these things and and know this these are realities. We don't enough, I would say, think of those things to incorporate into training. Like we know them as reality when we go to the movie theaters, go watch movies ourselves. We can totally vision, oh yeah, there's popcorn all over the floor. There's there's drinks spilled everywhere. So there's all these different flavors of stuff. Yep. And all of a sudden when it matters, I need my dog to ignore all those things and do the most important job it has, which is keep 
myself and everybody around us safe by hopefully uh, identifying any potential explosive threat. Um, but training far too often is routine canned training. Let's throw some motors out. Let's run this um, without the thinking of, oh, as a bomb dog handler, one of the most common things these days that I will probably get called to go do is to go do a safety search of an area after an active shooter. Every active shooter call that I know, they always employ or bring in bomb dogs to search the area because of lessons of Columbine where the kids Mm -hmm. had tossed the explosive devices everywhere, set the precedent. And then it's been followed up with, like you said, the Aurora shooting and other ones where the San Bernardino ones, where you have these mass shootings with explosives thrown into the mix or even the presumption of explosives that are in the mix. So therefore, if you're a bomb dog handler in the United States, and it actually could be worldwide, you're going to get called if you have a mass shooting anywhere remotely near you because they want as many bomb dogs on scene to start making sure these areas are safe to get people in and out of, to make sure we don't have any devices that we've missed, so on and so forth. And in those situations, just like you mentioned, the level of distractions, like you already said, the blood, the bodies, how many have actually decided, Other, like I said, other than my military handlers who've definitely done this, um, send your dog up to a body to sniff it to see if there's a, a device on it. Now, with technology, I would say that is mitigated a little bit. Most of your, I would say at least your bigger cities will probably use a robot device to go For check sure. that. But I mean, there's hundreds and thousands of agencies that are mom and pop agencies that are no more than 35, 40 officers, you know, in a number, in a big area. And then your biggest agency is a county, but the county is so rural, they lack some of these tools. So again, as a handler, I'd rather, you know, have it and not need it than need it, not have it. So I need to be making sure my training is preparing me and my dog for that kind of situation, which these days, as sad as it is, is probable. So how do you now take your experience and what do you do in training to help out these handlers prepare for that? Do you go get blood from the local blood bank and pour it over a scene? What have you done from your lessons learned that when you're training with others to prepare them for something like that? Well, well, first I, I, I make sure that people recognize that you, you can't be ready for or expect any operational success without good fundamentals. So, um, I, I probably do a really bad job on social media showing anything other than my fundamentals because I love fundamentals. I could probably do a better job of showing other things that we do. Um, but as you know, our dog is a sensor and that sensor needs to be calibrated and we deploy a lot. And on Tuesdays or our training days, I need to make sure that that dog is calibrated for the odors that it's supposed to, to sniff out. And how do we do that? We isolate each odor and we add distractors and we talk about some of the issues we may find um, in in real world situations that we might have not prepared for in training. So it's about that, like you said. How how are we approaching it? We got blood, animal blood, human blood. We isolated that odor and we isolated it first. Showed that dog that picture that hey, 
Uh, yes, it's a novel odor. You can ignore it. It's just a distractor. And then taking that extra step by putting it in an operational setting, which sometimes is different for the dog. So doing all that is really important, but it, it starts with the non-sexy stuff. The fundamentals are really important. I know that boxes kind of get a, a, a bad uh, reputation sometimes. But if you stay on boxes, yes, you're not preparing for operational success. But if I'm utilizing that sensor and that dog, that sensor, that biosensor that the dog has, I have to be able to say that that dog has been calibrated. And in that calibration, I, I don't, I've never had a problem with someone saying your fundamentals are too good. Uh, I've never had an issue with a dog saying, or, or a dog acting differently because because um, his fundamentals are really good. Like uh, good fundamentals are going to be uh, essential to every professional athlete. Like uh, any baseball player, uh, any professional shooter is going to be dry shooting a bunch of times. Professional athletes are always going to go through fundamental exercises. So um, I know trainers that say, I want to get away from boxes as soon as I can. My question to them is, okay, well, how are you isolating odors to introduce novel odors into the environment? Are we starting with just in the environment? If that's how you want to do it, cool. If you're having success there, I like, I'm a data freak. So I love to be able to notate those data points and say, this is what I've introduced to my dog in a controlled environment. This is what I know he perceives that odor to be either a distractor or something he needs to pay attention to. And then when you talk about the world of explosives, you know, things like C4, are you, are you introducing molding clay and things that are similar in composition to that C4 to your dog? And if not, then how are you doing that if you're not isolating that odor somehow, some way? So, sorry, I kind of went on a rant there. but No, no, <laughs> it, 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 you bring up a critical point, and I'm so glad that you did because obviously you and I connected a lot on those kind of on this topic itself because we're both big fundamental guys. Um, and like you said, whether it be boxes or whether it be the wheel or whether it be a wall, mm-hmm. All of those are tools to work on fundamentals. And I was laughing when you were bringing up the sport, the professional athlete aspect. The, the analogy I make all the time is like, I'm like, okay, I start off with how many Super Bowls has Tom Brady won? Right. And then they'll say, oh yeah, seven. And then I'll say, okay, so no matter what Super Bowl it was, what was he doing on the field before the game even started? He was taking snaps. He was doing footwork. He was throwing the ball. He was doing all the fundamentals Mm -hmm. to make sure that he was ready for the biggest game of his life at that time to go do it. And you mentioned another critical point, which is a lot of handlers like to work on, you know, when they set up training, they set up really as nothing more than an odor recognition test, except they just stick the odors in a normal environment and call it training. And to the, bigger point that I know we're both trying to make is there's your fundamentals where you're able to isolate and work on specific things. And then you have your operational version of your training, which is to prepare you and, and prep you for various types of operational settings. That's not the environment where we're going to throw out five odors or three odors or whatever, because that's not in, I have to say this in most detection disciplines, multiple finds in one session is more rare than making the find, stopping where we're at, depending on what we're doing, and then starting again maybe afterwards. But it's usually find, stop, do something, investigate, 
render safe, whatever it would be, depending on the discipline. Um, but there are disciplines that do have multiple hides. Regardless of what you do, make sure that your operational training matches that reality. So therefore, it doesn't look different to the dog. But if you just want to run odor, and I love the word that you use, calibrate. I took that from a lot of scientists years ago myself. I loved how, and I, I took some shit from some guys that have been around a while, like, oh, you, you know, trying to call it calibration could be a stretch. And I'm like, whatever. It's true in the sense of if you use an intoxilizer, if you're a cop and you have to do a DUI, what do you have to do the intoxilizer? Well, it's got to be calibrated. Oh, you're going to use laser or a radar for speed mm-hmm. control. What does it have to be? Calibrated and tested. Just like you said a few seconds ago, dogs are deemed a sensor by definition now in a lot of the, well, the biggest one, OSAC, say, stating and putting out there, dogs are a sensor. So therefore, okay, how is your sensor calibrated and how is your sensor tested? And we, prior to these definitions and more things coming our way, we didn't, we just kind of threw it all together and said, this is what we did. And we had documentation and records and courts supported that. And that's great, but everything evolves, and what you're bringing up is one of those evolutions, which is, okay, breaking down the training into that segment of, here's, you know, initial training, here's maintenance training, and then here's our calibration and our testing. Mm -hmm. And then there's our operational evaluation and testing. All of those have important roles, and when we muddy them up too much is a lot of times where the issues or confusion from handlers come in uh, or even for the dogs come in because things aren't really clear. There's too much overlap or, um, you know, it's just dog or human is struggling because the communication or what we're trying to do isn't clear, or it's just so watered down in the sense of we're just throwing something out to go run it just so we can go down a checklist for, like you said, that weekly training that we're doing versus going, okay, What's my, I call it the P's of training. I, I might've mentioned it before in another podcast, but I go through these P's. What's my plan? Okay. What's my procedures? And then what's the protocols for if this happens or that happens? And I always write these down before we start. So that way, when we get into it, I, I'm not just kind of winging it because yes, I can wing it and do some training, but my training is never nearly as good as it is when I put a plan together and have the objective and try to accomplish whatever that is. And if we have a failure, great, good. Like you said, we're going to learn from that, apply that. And then the next training session, my plan is going to include whatever corrective action I need to do based on that failure. Is it me? Was it the dog? Was it the environment? So on and so forth. So um, we we hit the the bomb dog world, but you're in Texas, which is a huge area for narcotics and you work narcotics dogs. What is a narcotics deployment that uh, was really uh, impactful for you or had a, uh, just like your bomb, had a bleed over into your, oh, lessons learned, here's my failure, and I'm now going to, you know, remember that and apply it moving forward? Yeah, so, yeah, in Texas, there is no shortage of drugs coming over the border, as you can imagine. So we see... Probably, you know, equal to like California and New Mexico, we see a crap ton of drugs being um, in all different forms, whether it's hidden compartments in vehicles or luggage or whatnot. Now, most recently, we've kind of pivoted a little bit of um, 
our focus and working with the DEA and doing interdiction at the airports. And that's really fun. Um, I never practiced um, for for those exact things. And I'll give you kind of an example of what I'm talking about. So when in prepping for being able to deploy for the DEA, we know we're going to sniff a lot of luggages at the airport, obviously. So we'd set up luggage lines and making sure that the dogs are not looking for an orifice to put their nose on or looking for a seam that, hey, there's going to be odor and it's going to present itself in multiple ways. We want, and I feel like we do a good job of hitting that. But when we're knowing that it's going to be the focus of an operation, you want to spend extra time in that and making sure those dots are connecting well for the dogs. Well, uh, just previous to that, because I have a dual purpose dog, um, do you know who Josh Kirby is? He's a decoy from Texas. I, I who, definitely know of the name. I've mm-hmm. seen it and heard of it. I just don't know him personally. So Josh Kirby, fantastic guy. He left us in Texas and he's in Missouri now. He's the owner of Kirby Canine. I mentioned him because he was doing a decoy session with my dog in which he threw a backpack at the dog as it was coming in to bite him. And the dog kind of got upset, bit the backpack for a second, and then re-engaged the decoy, right? This is a distractor for the dog to let him know, hey, I'm your toy, not this, not anything that I have in my hand. You should be targeting me. Um, My dog had a little bit of an issue with it. Well, the next time we went to the airport, he saw a backpack that was like a one-for-one replica of the one he just put in his mouth. So what do you think he did uh, on the tarmac of the airport? Where there's a lineup, he went for that one that he remember he had an opportunity to kind of unload in and went to town in that backpack. So mm-hmm. the DEA guys are looking at me like, is that an alert? I'm like, no, that's just bad training. <laughs> that's that's what that is. Uh, so we're able to ice, like move things around, give them a slightly different picture. But those are the things that, I mean, you would think it's so stupid and small. I didn't even think about that. But as soon as it happened, I'm like, holy crap, I know that my dog is pulling from that experience and making an inference about what he's supposed to do here. And he's a little stressed. He hasn't been in this situation. If you've ever been on the tarmac of an international airport, it's rather loud. There's a lot of things moving, a lot of moving parts. So you can barely hear yourself. That's the other thing is um, you and I could be two feet from each other and can't hear anything we're saying. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, any verbal commands, either he was purposely not listening to me or he actually could not hear me, one or the other. But those are the things that we ended up addressing to make sure he understood, hey, when I'm asking you to sniff something, I'm giving you that sniff command. That that mouth has to be closed. You have to be sniffing. And that's what you get rewarded for. You can't be engaging in anything. And it was an easy fix, thank God. But um, I mean, that that's kind of funny for me because um, who would have thought that something that minute would have turned into uh, a small issue? Oh, yeah. I mean, like you said, uh, the joys of cross-discipline training. And a bleed over effect, you know, mm-hmm. oh, that's a cool thing for bite work. I'd be happy to do that. Not knowing that, oh, there was a bleed over <laughs> to my detection that came from something <laughs> like that. So, and, and I, like you said, there's so many things that we go through as canine handlers that we may pay the man later on for that, like crazy off the cuff idea that though that was a good idea for this type of exercise, oh, yeah. I do have to think big picture and go, okay, what does this also look like or could bleed over into, uh, you know, another part of my dog's, uh, toolbox that it has to go work from. Yeah. So the, well, to, uh, be, to be clear, like I, I really like the exercise on the dual purpose side of the mm-hmm. dog, making sure that he's targeting what he should be targeting. 
Um, I wish that I would have spent more time in retrospect making sure he got that clear because it would have helped in the detection. But because I never really addressed it, and I don't think he did a good enough job uh, that time, that's my fault. That's on me as the handler saying, uh, you brought up a problem that the dog uh, has in his picture about what his responsibility is in this specific uh, exercise. Um, Because I didn't address it in the dual purpose side, it actually kind of bit me in the butt in the detection side, which is an interesting um, you know, lesson to be learned. Mm-hmm. Has there been any type of fines that you've had, um, where you were like, Ooh, that was good. That, that paid off my training made a great connection there. Or was there something that you're like, wow, I'm so surprised my dog had made that generalization to that so easily or unexpectedly? Well, you see, uh, because we're a border state, you see a very unique ways of hiding um, narcotics in all kinds of vehicles. So what we try to do is we try to emulate those things, right? Because if you're only sm- uh, sniffing seams in a car and a dog doesn't understand that there's opportunity for o- other places, uh, available odor in other places, sometimes they'll miss those big loads of narcotics in hidden compartments. So perfect example of if you've never had your dog hit on a catalytic converter hide, it's going to be really difficult for him to do that, he or she to do that in a real life situation. If the dog doesn't even recognize that scene between you know the cement and the bottom of the car as an area of opportunity for odor. A lot of us don't train that way. I, I don't know why, but I've seen it uh, in a lot of places that, I, that, uh, that I'm asked to train and help um, instruct. Um, I never I see a lot of... Um, of presentations around um, seams, which is great, cool. If the dog needs help or he misses a seam, please, by all means, make sure that the dog is is sniffing its area of responsibility. But what about that huge seam on the bottom of the car where a lot of odor may still be present for the dog? So, of course, we got to do it safe, safely because cars get hot and the dogs can get burned. Um, but we recognize that, okay, if my dog is smelling that seam and he wants to pursue odor to its source, what, do I, what else do I need? That's my alert. I don't need to al- allow my dog all the way to the catalytic converter where it's going to burn itself and have a negative experience. But we train for that so we can articulate, hey, that's why that alert looked different than maybe my other ones. Because for safety reasons, I'm not going to allow my dog to go all the way to source. Just like we wouldn't allow sometimes our ex- explosive dogs to go to source um, and do anything for a prolonged period of time. Once the dog alerts, you probably want to recall the dog for safety reasons and go through your your protocols like you were saying afterwards. But um, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's just yeah, one no, of the things that we got to address. Yeah, well, you, you brought up a great uh, aspect, which is hide placement. Frequently we, and it's, I think a lot of times for drug dog handlers, it comes down to a time issue. The, well, we have this much time, let's just call it a couple hours max. Uh, to put out hides, let them aerate appropriately based on the way we're hiding it, which most times means we can't truly hide it like the adversary we're focused on trying to find the narcotics who's smuggling it on purpose, trying to get it past the cops. Yep. So therefore, our training doesn't match those conditions in which the odor is going to be presented to the dog. And like you said, the locations where we can use to teach the dog, hey, this is a, an area that could be very productive for you to go check, but we've never taught that in training. We've never showed the dog that picture. 
we're really good about doing those things like you mentioned in bite work. We come up with all these ideas. And of course, the joke I make all the time is, you know, half the cops, if you said you could light the decoy on fire and send your dog to go bite them, they would be all over that. They're like, hell yeah, let's try that. But detection does not get those same things. Um, so you bringing up those points from experiences where you have found things in a certain way. I, I like you want to share with people, Hey, we need to more frequently make sure that we're exposing the dogs to these kinds of environmental conditions, operational conditions, things of that nature. So that way we know, Hey, the dog has an opportunity to be successful and locating this but if we're just putting something in the seam of a car door or a bumper or a headlight that doesn't really match what we're going to be actually you know dealing with Mm -hmm. so um again i i just hope those that are listening and watching go you know what how can i be more creative and set something up for my dog to experience that might match what i'm going to find there's, of course, the limitations of, you know, the training aids being out for so long and how we can conceal them. But I really like to people or really like to get people to think outside the box, literally, yeah. <laughs> in the sense of, of how can I present my odor in a way that's challenging for my dog and that might match what I'm expected to find. Um, and to kind of segue from that, there's you mentioned earlier that you've been doing parts of research and research is another aspect that helps us become better informed on how to be best prepared. Um, Your research that you've been working on mostly was that study between marijuana and hemp. Um, I know, like you said, it's not published yet. It's close. So just give us what you can as a overall, what you've been doing, what we're kind of learning there's the bigger part that I wish I could go into more, which is the uh, the THC part of it, what we've believed. And, you know, yeah. as you already know, I shared uh, an interview between me and Mike Kamisic where we kind of go into that, again, yeah. waiting for the details of the research. But with all that said, go ahead and, and fill us in on uh, what you can so far on that. Yeah. So I have to preference everything I say with, yes, the research has not been available uh, to the public yet. It hasn't been made available to the public. So with that being said, yes, I'm, I'm limited in what I can say. But um, here, here's what I will say. Here's what's fascinating about the research that we've done so far is that we first tackled the question on whether a dog can discriminate between the odors of hemp and marijuana hemp being defined as Delta-9 THC present in cannabis that's less than 0.3%, um, that would be hemp, right? Before, federally speaking, all cannabis was marijuana, therefore illegal. So when this hemp bill passed, and it was either 2018 or 2019, uh, I think it was 2018 federally. In Texas, it was 2019. House Bill 1325 is what it was in, in Texas. And it first drew my attention because um, marijuana is still illegal in Texas and as it is in many states. Um, so we wanted to see, um, just answer that question. Can a dog, um, discriminate between the two odors? So we took, um, various dogs from, uh, my group, um, from two groups in Tennessee and one in Georgia, dogs from all ages, uh, different breeds, um, different, um, exposures to, uh, their foundational understanding of what marijuana is. 
um, and put them through essentially a case study on whether or not they'll generalize. And if you've never done this yourself, I would say, uh, please hold on because the study should be releasing soon. I'm, I'm hopeful that it's going to be available before the end of the year. Um, this type of year, it's like, you know, this is one thing I've learned about working with scientists is they're never in a rush. So <laughs> we've been literally holding on to this research um, for almost three years, but we've continued that research. But here's what I think people should take from it. Um, here's what I definitely feel comfortable saying um, that, yes, will be available to the public. So if you want to take it after I kind of uh, hit on it and, and give your perspective, I'd love to hear your perspective on it. There was a there was a group out of New Jersey who wanted to tackle this question. And the way they did it, because legally speaking, we're talking about Delta 9 THC is the, essentially the difference legally speaking. They took high levels of THC and taught the dogs to alert to high levels of THC. And they thought essentially it'd be like a threshold issue. If the dog was introduced to a high level of THC, similar to currency dogs, you throw in a lot of currency and you say, hey, this is what I want you to alert to. But, you know, maybe small amounts of currency, I don't want you to alert to. So we know the dogs can do that. So uh, that form of thinking is not new. The problem is there was no science behind it. What we did find out and through, and this, we're, this is in conjunction with FIU um, and their labs, is that Delta 9 THC, the vapor pressure of that specific odor is so low that the dogs are not picking up. It wouldn't reach what scientists would call their threshold. So by training on, let's say, in this case, I don't know exactly how they did it in New Jersey, um, but let's say they took a, um, a THC pen or cartridge, right? And they put it in a box and said, hey, well, I know from a lab that this has 50% Delta 9 THC, a very, very high amount. So I'm going to teach my dog on this. Because we know that the dogs are not picking up on the Delta 9 THC, it's everything else that the dog is picking up on that they're responding to. So if it's in a plastic or or a type of metal, or it's got a fragrance to it, which many of them do have a, a certain fragrance, um, that's probably what the dog is picking up on. So yeah, the, you may have, you may see operational success in saying, hey, you see, we put these uh, uh, THC cartridges out there and the dogs are picking it up. The truth is you don't know exactly what the dog is picking up on. And science would point against the fact that it would be Delta 9 uh, THC. So for that just little tidbit of information should make everybody just just kind of pause, wait for the research to come out, look at everything, and then we can have more in-depth conversations about um, what the dogs pick up when they're successful, which is a clue, on discriminating between hemp and marijuana. That's that's huge point to bring up, which was we have so many assumptions about what the dogs are smelling with no science backing that up, which is scary in a sense. But up until now, we didn't have scientists that were able to help us. So that was a significant component into why we just believe what we believed. Well, now science is stepping in and there causes a conflict because the science comes in sometimes and says, well, it turns out that isn't truly accurate or a version of that's accurate. There's also this that you didn't consider, like you just said. Um, I went through that myself. I went through that more than a few times, uh, which is why I think much differently now when it comes to detection and odors and what they do and what's happening, um, which is like I share the cheat code that dogs do use, use to learn not only the odor, but context, 
how we mm-hmm. put it out, um, who put it out, what's it in, all of those things. And like you said just a second ago in, the, in regards to the THC and the, the vape pen style, and um, we we can make an assumption that it's THC, but in many cases it may turn out to be it's the cartridge, it's the this, it's the that. And we as an industry do have to get a whole lot better about um, making sure we're doing good protocols, showing that we're proofing all these non-target items and that, yes, the dog is learning and honing in on that. And you brought up the other part is that we also need to make sure that we're reinforcing what we want the dog to find. And we have to be good about making sure that that thing, that particular odorant, is what the dog is honing in on. And that's what the reinforcement's for, not something else that we didn't know that they were paying attention to, which happens all the time. For sure. And it happens in regular training when you're doing a good job. So mm-hmm. when you're when you're trying to do scientific research, you've got to be as precise as possible when you come to these things. And this goes back to me isolating odors with the boxes that we use. How, how could we possibly help understand or get data that's worthy of our attention if we can't isolate those odors and say the dog's responding to this but not this? We can't do that in an operational setting, not at first, because then you've introduced other odors that you don't even, you may not even recognize are there. So this is why I'm such a believer in the scientific method of approaching these, these case studies you're going to do with dogs. You need to be able to isolate these odors. That's the only way you can do it. Um, And remember that these scientists are our best friends. There, there are the people we're relying on in court for, for their expertise so I'm so passionate about that aspect of it. I know you are uh, as well, Cameron, and you were kind of um, the, the the person who really introduced that to the industry and got a lot of flack because of it. So thanks for doing <laughs> that, by the way. I'm glad you're getting more flack because now uh, m- what I do is appreciated. But when you were doing it, it was looked at as kind of taboo. Like, why would you do such a thing? Yeah, it was there. There was the. Uh... Because again, I went through the struggle myself. When you bring somebody in with a scientific background, they are able to dissect. And in some cases, it feels like they're picking apart what you've done and showing you all these things that you're not paying attention to or that you missed versus taking that and going, okay, thanks for showing me that, but how do I make it better? Um, We just have as an industry, the typical response, which is to become defensive and argue against versus embracing a little bit. And and there's valid points sometimes to kind of, like you said a second ago, put the brakes on too. Okay, is what the science side is, is it applicable or is it just gee whiz helpful? Um, And we have to sometimes weed through that because a study sample of only 51 dogs, and let's just say out of that vast majority were in a laboratory, has some good information, but it may not translate completely. And just like case law, um, people like to grab a segment of what the case law said or a segment of research says, and then hang all the weight on that. I did that too. Uh, now I do take a, I take a open eyed approach. Okay, great. Super information. I, I want to know more about it and then dissect. Is it applicable? Okay. This part is, this part is, this part is, and then what may not be totally applicable, but hey, be aware of. Um, 
and that's again something that we do is we it's easy for us to jump on a point especially if it validates something that we believed we're oh, all yeah. about it we get really passionate about that uh when it doesn't validate what we believe we want to become defensive and i just urge people like yourself like you said let's look at it with an open eye and what information can i take from this to improve myself as a dog handler and trainer and what practices can i clean up a little bit such as you know one of the things me both you and i cringe at sometimes is wooden boxes and then the hey let's just throw everything in the wooden box and it's going to work great oh and man it's there's we've evolved a lot since then so we don't have to use that did that technique work it worked but when we look at it now, is it nearly as effective and efficient process? No, it, it lacks a lot of clarity to the dog, even though they'd get themselves through it some way or another. But what we ended up doing a lot of times is we ended up putting a lot more work in than we needed to had we just made some adjustments of what we were using, how we were using it, maybe some odor hygiene, maybe some material or substrates that were better for making sure my dog wasn't focusing on dog saliva versus the target sure. odor and things like that. Um, you know, it's, it's like I learned with Nathan, um, uh, a battery, um, let's say, uh, like a ball launcher, they, the battery in there has high levels of lithium. And mm-hmm. if we're not careful, the dog will, some dogs will hone in on, oh, well, if this is there, then that's relevant to me. Um, and it's not same for every dog. Other dogs wouldn't care less, but we can't make the assumption that they're not, and we can't make the assumption that they are. So just like you said a minute ago, this is where our fundamentals and our odor recognition testing help us weed in or weed out some of the things that we don't want and then hone in on the things that we do want to reinforce a dog for. Yeah. But like you mentioned earlier, not enough time is spent on the uh, fundamental stuff. People want to get past that and go do the cool guy stuff. And without always incorporating your fundamentals, we miss out on some of that clarity and efficiency and effectiveness to make us better. So. Hopefully people listen and, and they get intrigued by um, how can I be better? What can I do to enhance my detection? How can I light my decoy on fire, so to speak, in <laughs> detection to make sure my dog is uh, clear and prepared for the crazy real world that I might face and my dog will still be an efficient detection dog tool and tell me if that chemical is there. I'll respond and indicate for you, or at least at a bare minimum, show you really good changes of behavior that I know are predictable and reliable to that means odors there. So yeah, there's a lot of lessons learned there. I really enjoyed the process. It's, um, you know, everything from you mentioned wooden boxes, you know, in this study, that's not what we use for obvious reasons. We use uh, high density polyethylene, um, a, a delivery system that I think you've seen before the court system. So shout out to Sniff Industries and Paul Curtis, who's the owner of that system. There's a reason why we use that, especially for the uh, question of hemp versus marijuana, um, mm-hmm. and whether a dog can discriminate between the two. Uh, his hot boxes have uh, different, uh, um, I, I guess the hot box would be the, the, the box that would deploy the toy at source, has um, magnets and electricity and so you have current going through there. So we needed a bunch of these hot boxes to show the dog around mm-hmm. odor that we did not want them to respond to. So they would isolate specifically, what is it that I'm getting paid for, mm-hmm. right? And we'd have to put a toy in every single one of those boxes and load them up the same way. I mean, those attention to detail is huge because it can skew Absolutely. your results significantly. So um, because um, it's such a close odor, 
um, we felt like this was the best way to go about that process. And we all uh, agreed that, okay, we're going to do everything the same. And that's another thing it's hard to find is trainers that are going to be disciplined enough to do everything the exact same way so that so these true. results are actually something you can go to the bank with. Um, and then, you know, working with the scientific community, it's not something that as trainers, we could have done solely by ourselves. I mean, we could have, but I don't think it gives as much validity in court as it does when you have each and every one of these hemp samples that we tested analyzed and by the lab with FIU with Dr. Furt and Dr. Frank, you know, these people are spearheading that, that part of our industry. They've done so much for us already. Those are the relationships we need to, um, you know, really cherish, maintain, and continue to work with. You know, the hemp versus marijuana stuff, I really hope that it comes out sooner than later. Um, I could tell mm -hmm. you that um, as far as dogs are concerned, I kind of hit on, we had about 24 dogs in the initial study. I can tell you, I just got back from Wisconsin a couple months ago. We put 43 dogs who I've never seen, had no idea what their foundation was. I've never done anything with these dogs. And in two days, we're able to, to show them or every single one of those dogs within two days were able to disc uh, discriminate between the odors of hemp and marijuana. Um, and Dr. Furton was there. Dr. Frank was there. Paul was there. I was there. Uh, so we're, we're able to give hope to the industry that there's an answer, but just be pleased, be mindful that it has to be done scientifically and has to be done with all those processes in order. And um, although it's taken much longer than I'd like, the truth is also having an answer for the industry on how to move forward was important to me. So let's say theoretically the dogs can do it, right? Which kind of I've already alluded to. Now, where are you going to get your hemp samples? Mm -hmm. Are you going to go to your local store and get a hemp sample? What hemp samples are you going to use? Is CBD oil the same as uh, hemp flour? Uh, is, it, is, it, is it the same as hemp seed or hemp rope? Those are questions that were previously answered by the scientists. We couldn't answer that by ourselves. They mm -hmm. did everything in the lab and then was it was um you know it was then tested by us on our side as on the trainer side whether those results uh, matched up. In other words, they believed that anything processed hemp uh hemp wise like any kind of oils would be something the dog would not respond to. That's exactly what we found. Um, but I didn't know that going into that, but we put it as distractors to see if the dog would respond to. So we know in the study that really, you know, hemp flower is the only thing the dog makes that strong association with that generalization that we kind of want to break apart. Um, so not only when the study comes out, will we have answers to all those questions, but we also teamed up with hemp farms that are law enforcement, law enforcement friendly that do a third party laboratory analysis that you can that will hold up in court and giving answers to law enforcement officers when they're ready to tackle this question on a bigger scale so we're doing everything we can to assist our industry i think that's that's our always been our main goal me personally and especially in the businesses leave our industry in better hands than we got it and i think uh for us this was a labor of love and we're super happy with with the outcome more so because we're we learned so much through that process and we're going to have answers for everybody, hopefully sooner than later. That is so awesome. And I hate cutting it here, but my battery's yeah. about to die. Oh, no, I got to cut <laughs> so it. Add that. But um, we will share in the show. First, thank you again for the research that you've done. And thank you for taking your time to share this. And we'll go deeper. We'll bring you back when the research is out so we can actually dive into that and, and share all the info. Um, I will put all your contact info in the show notes. but. Cool. 
thank you so much for taking the time to be on here with me and to answer these questions and have these conversations so that way others can learn. No, thank you. And just a little tidbit for the future. I think we're going to start tackling the fentanyl question as well. Yes. Also with FIU, I'm, I'm trying to convince Lauren DeGrief to, uh, to, to team up with me on this. I think uh, there's some questions that are still unanswered that we're ready to, mm-hmm. to test out and see and analyze. So um, whatever the industry needs, like we all should be taking a holistic look at that and saying, okay, what can we do individually? Because it's not just my company doing this. There are other companies out there. Um, but yeah, thanks for having me on, man. It's always always a pleasure. And we, we follow each other for a while. So it's cool to to finally get up and do this. And I hate being on this side of it, but I'm glad <laughs> I, I'm glad I was able to give hopefully some information that people could find useful. Heck yeah, man. Absolutely. And everybody, thank you again for tuning in to Canines Talking Sense, where it's okay to be nosy. All right. Oh, let's see. This is the part you tell me. <laughs>